What is the silliest claim ever made? The competition is fierce, but I think the answer is easy. Next to this claim, every known religious belief is only a little less sensible than the belief that grass is green. The claim is the silliest view ever held in the history of human thought. This is the great silliness. We must hope that it doesn't spread outside the academy. it i hope you had a good time doing daughter's philosophy podcast because this is the last episode this is it (laughs) we are going to be hunted down gonged off the stage because tonight we're going to be reading a paper that advocates for the silliest claim ever made and to make matters even worse i plan to advocate for personally in my traditional fashion an even more radical position than that one. Oh boy. Uh, we're just asking for it. Getting radical. Getting so radical. So is my career over because you're a radical? Is that what this is? My career as a podcaster? Is it over? You going down with the ship or are you getting to get your lifeboat ready? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be like, what is this idea and what's this paper, Harlan? The idea is, or the, the super silly claim, is some version, some way of expressing consciousness does not exist the paper that we're going to specifically talk about is one by the philosopher of psychology keith frankish entitled illusionism as a theory of consciousness which was originally published as one of those target articles in the journal of consciousness studies 2016 uh, where he publishes his 20 page overview and then 30 40 other people or whatever all write in and some people are like fuck this guy and other people say this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and they all bicker about it it went so well they reworked it into a book by the same name that they released in 2017 so more than most dollar philosophy episodes we're getting contemporary oh i see so this one for some reason or other pisses off a lot of people the author of that quote that we read up top is another philosopher named Galen Strawson, and he doesn't really care for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read a little article that he wrote as a book review, I think, New York Review of Books, called The Consciousness Deniers, where he wrote those sentences and many others quite heartily attacking and ridiculing or attempting to ridicule the illusionist position. Yeah, I I don't think he's much of a meme smith. 
that was that was something that was tough for me because I kind of felt like, and I know this is like this is probably mean to say, and I don't know who this Galen Strawson person is, but it was like I uh, this is so harsh. I feel like it's so harsh to say. I'm sorry, Galen. I know you're gonna listen to this. <laughs> Stop trying to imitate Daniel Dennett. Like it just he kind of like it came off as like a bad version of. He's like, oh, that's how he does it. I'll do that. But then he does it completely wrong, you know, or something like the, even the imitation isn't very good. I don't know. Yeah, that's he's not going to care for that very much. I'm sure he wouldn't. Dennett, of course, is one of the prime targets of Strawson and his article. And- right. But I mean, like Dennett in terms of his tone and his approach and all that, not like content or anything like that. <laughs> Another buzzword for Dennett. But you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's what I, I got the sense of. I, I could almost hear Dennett half-heartedly reading it out loud or something, you know. The great silliness, you know. Millions of tiny robots. Great <laughs> silliness. You know, just I could... Uh, it, it, to, to say the... <laughs> just like, to say nothing of how I actually feel, how I really feel about it, I just didn't like it. Sorry. Sorry, Galen. Um, you know what? Just... I will, I will try harder next time. I don't know. I have a hard time feeling sorry for someone who would write the sentence, formally speaking, it, brackets what I'm saying here, does beg the question. And begging the question is a well-known theoretical sin. Sometimes, however, it is the correct response. Anyone who realizes <laughs> they're begging the question and doubles down on it is unlikely to make friends with I... I know this is not about Galen Strawson today. <laughs> we're like doing a G.E. Moore thing here. But what? who is this person? And we're also going to get to Keith Frankish. We're like, who's Galen Strawson? To the extent that it's relevant to some people, it may be, and some people it may not be. He happens to be the son of a, another famous Oxford philosopher named P.F. Strawson, who was a relatively big deal through the mid-20th, but maybe he earned everything he's got. (laughs) Ah, he's British, educated at Oxford and Cambridge, philosopher of mind primarily in some metaphysics, and I think he also works at Oxford? At least for a time did. I've heard enough. So he's just just very British, and the son of a (laughs) philosopher. (laughs) He's just very British. Uh... That's great. We don't like you Brits. Just kidding. I think Frankish might be also. I think he is. Do you want to just get, you know, what is this paper? What is the idea? What is the paper? Come on now. I want to draw a distinction. There's two ways to make radical claims. Provocative and defensible. I think you can attract some attention. You can get people riled up. You can get them to listen, show up to your lecture, whatever, if you use provocative phrasing. But then when they come through the door and sit down and you get up there and the clock starts and you're actually giving your lecture, you're probably going to present a defensible version of the claim. The provocative one in this case being simply consciousness does not exist. But anyone who's listened to the previous episodes knows that, you know, around here we don't do that kind of stuff. We don't make dogmatic assertions about reality and what it does or doesn't contain. My version of the what I take to be the defensible claim, would run something more like, given the most persuasive arguments, with which I'm familiar at this time, the best current model of the world available to science and philosophy 2018, 
does not include phenomenal consciousness or anything like it in its ontology or in its metaphysical picture. That's the version that I like to use. We'll talk about my arguments later, and we'll let Frankish do his version of what he takes to be the defensible claim, because he, like Dennett, will not boldly state consciousness doesn't exist. They have slightly different ways of going about what they think is defensible, but Frankish is deeply influenced by Daniel Dennett, and so will be what we talk about tonight. If you're more familiar with Dennett than this, then you can have a pretty good idea about it. <laughs> Questions? How, how many okays do I get in this episode? Help yourself. Joking. <laughs> I, if we are digging now into... What are we pressing on into? What consciousness is supposed to mean? Okay, so we're, we're not yet at the paper, is what you're saying. I guess we're a step short of the paper. Maybe a couple steps. Cool. That's just all I wanted to know. That's all I wanted to know. Press on, my friend. Okay, so one might say, as I often do, people, what is this consciousness thing that you all apparently believe in and think is so important that if anyone denies it, they need to be tarred and feathered and run out of town? Okay. I have not personally been satisfied with an answer even to that question yet. But when you attempt to find out, you go, you read the people, you read the realists, the David Chalmers and Tom Nagels, Jerry Fodors, John Searles, all these people, and you try to figure out what they're talking about, you get a buckshot of terminology thrown at your face that includes phenomenal consciousness. I think that in its at least popular form comes from a paper by Ned Block. You'll hear about experience, subjectivity, the first-person point of view, introspection, qualia, which are the ineffable, intrinsic, qualitative feels of phenomenal experience. You'll hear talk about minds and selves and intentionality. Things will seem and they will appear, and I will have direct or immediate acquaintance with certain things. It is private. I will have understanding about things. Everything will have the suffix ness after it. <laughs> Somehow that seems to help. There's redness and there's blueness and there's whatever. And one of the most common phrases that we'll run into and probably get into later a bit is the phrase, what it's like-ness. That's a way that it's typically expressed. One is conscious if there is something that it is like to be that thing. Mm. Does that mean anything to you? No. Uh, I just, I, I'm just trying to imagine what it'd be like to, ooh, what, what it would be like. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine the experience. Oh shoot! I'm just trying to imagine. I see what you're doing. How. My advisors or, you know, people would have responded if I tried to pull something like that off in a room of, you know, hard scientists or something. You think it wouldn't fly? Even in biology. Be like, hey, look what it's like to be a bat, you know, and you're all your chiropteran specialists would be like. What? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe not. But I just think that I just when I think about that, I'm just run out of the basement of the. The department or whatever. We'll try to give you a little taste of what it's like to engage with 
philosophers of mind tonight. <laughs> okay. So then you've got this orienting turn of phrase that has, on both sides of the aisle, established the terms that have been debated for the last 20-so years from David Chalmers called The Hard Problem, which is basically attempting to integrate all of those things I just mentioned. Phenomenal, subjective, first-person experience with the rest of human intellectual endeavor, with philosophy and science and everything and metaphysics and everything that we've tried to do. Because, as I think Ryan is saying many scientists may respond to it with a bit of a what? We don't use any of those things. We don't talk about that. We don't need that. What? What's the deal? A lot of people have been persuaded that there is such a thing. There is one and only one hard problem, and it is a problem, and it's hard. And we don't know how to fix it. You've got a bunch, you have a camp who will say it cannot be solved. Other ones that say we have no indication yet as to how it might be. And and then you have another camp who says this is a bewitchment of language and that there's no problem here at all. It's just a mistake. And I think both Dennett and Frankish think that. Okay. I think that's as much background as I plan to say before I dive into the paper. Okay. Let's do it. Let's dive in. I don't have anything to add to that. Let's do this. Okay, so Frankish wants, he invents a new thing called the illusion problem to contrast and replace the hard problem. Mm -hmm. He writes, Theories of consciousness typically address the hard problem. They accept that phenomenal consciousness is real and aim to explain how it comes to exist. There is, however, another approach, which holds that phenomenal consciousness is an illusion and aims to explain why it seems to exist. The problem of explaining why experiences seem to have phenomenal properties, Frankish labels the illusion problem. And he wants to establish a research program to alter some of the human energy expenditure in philosophy of mind from the hard problem over to the illusion problem. But notice, when he does that, he has accepted a fair amount. He now has experiences, he has seemings, and he has illusions, among other things. All of those sound, on the surface, to many of us, as though they might be kind of conscious. So he'll get in hot water with certain people by employing that terminology. Mm. I, I, of course, did not notice... (laughs) God damn it. <laughs> Pay attention, kid. Well, I mean, what's I mean, that's I think these matter. Like what's a seeming? You're tell you're coming in here and telling me that consciousness is an illusion, but then you're going to tell me that I have experiences and things seem to me in certain ways. I think it's excusable to feel unintended, whatever, as though you already sound like a consciousness person and maybe you're giving up too much already by that only in the philosophy of mind domain right i mean outside of it somebody can be like well it seems to me right you know like this is all very specific to a domain of inquiry correct i guess so but that's also an interesting question and point 
the way and extent to which folk psychological terminology is meant to be taken literally in idiomatic expressions in common language. How much should we think that the phrase seems to me reflects or brings in phenomenal consciousness when someone says seems to me? Or is it more neutral and it just means given the information I am currently finding relevant, my judgment is X? And it doesn't have any phenomenal quality to it. I don't know. That's what I, yeah, the second one to me, I would, that's totally what I would think, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe most people are like, no, no, I'm very familiar with phenomenal consciousness or properties, you know, <laughs> uh, and, you know, the literature, you know, like I would think that people would say something seems to them is sort of like almost like a probabilistic language, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. At the very least, we can take this as terms of art, of philosophy of mind, or even of consciousness realist philosophy of mind and you're going to be needing that beer i hope you got a stack of them (laughs) no i don't (laughs) someone play a sad violin go okay thanks one of the things frankish wants to do near the beginning is just to explain and motivate the general idea because it seems to many of us that the received view the common sense the historical literature is primarily mind realists. Even Descartes, who attempted to do his best to doubt everything, could not find his way to doubting his own mind. Uh huh. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta do a short on that fucking. I really hate that argument. All right. What I love, though, is that like that's like the one thing that most of these people who would use the word seem outside of the context of philosophy of mind would actually know, you know? <laughs> anyway. But like here, I was worried that it was going to go unsaid. <laughs> you know, you were just going to like talk around and everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, is that I think, therefore I am? Make it explicit. <clears throat> This is something that Dennett works on with his intentional stance stuff and his emphasis on heterophenomenology, which is the scientific or pseudoscientific practice of taking people's reports seriously of what's happening in their consciousness, but not taking their hypothesis theory explanation model of what caused the reports seriously. People think when they're set down in front of the red wall and they're asked, what color are you seeing? And they say red. I think that their explanation for their verbal report is, well, I've got a mind and my eyes send information to my mind and then my mind has some redness in it and it's the redness which makes me say, oh yeah, I am seeing or experiencing or having the phenomenal qualia, quail of redness. Dennett and Frankish want us to back off from that to what is in the agreement base. Both the realist and the instrumentalist have the reports, but then the realist wants to just kind of take it for granted that the theory of mind is the correct theory. And these guys are saying, hang on a second, that's not the only option. Frankish presents us with three classes of responses when we get anomalous results in the sense of that don't clearly fit with the rest of human intellectual behavior. Quote, 
Suppose we encounter something that seems anomalous in the sense of being radically inexplicable within our established scientific worldview. Psychokinesis is an example. We would have, broadly speaking, three options. First, we could accept that the phenomenon is real and explore the implications, proposing major revisions to our science. Second, we could argue that although the phenomenon is real, it is not in fact anomalous and can be explained within current science. Third, we could argue that the phenomenon is illusory and set about investigating how the illusion is produced. And he calls the three options. The first one is the realist, the one that says psychokinesis is real. Now that we've accepted that, we have to go back to our science and shift around all the nodes in our web of belief until we're able to accommodate that fact. The second one he calls the conservative realist. They accept, all right, well, psychokinesis seems well-established, we've run enough experiments, we're persuaded that it seems to be a thing, but maybe what we need to do in order to accommodate its presence is not altering, for example, the ontology of physics, but rather changing our interpretation of the experiments themselves or our definitions of the terms. When the apparently psychokinetic effects were observed, maybe there's another way to say that, and maybe we can bring together the scientific and manifest image here without drastically altering one or the other. And then the third option being the one that he's going to be advocating. Psychokinesis did not occur. An illusion occurred. Somehow you guys got tricked that there was some spoon-bending that went on in there. But since we all have good reasons to suspect that no psychokinesis occurred, the interesting question is, why do you think it did? And then if we can explain how and why you became convinced of psychokinesis, we've done everything we need to do. So that's what he wants to do with consciousness. Mm -hmm. You think there's consciousness... We have good reasons not to alter our metaphysics so drastically as to accommodate it. Instead, I just want to explain the reports. I mean, I think in when I say that, I might be slipping a little bit too far into my picture, which is <laughs> to the right, I guess it would be if we play in that spatial metaphor of Frankish. I'm, I'm, I would say all you have to do is explain the reports of consciousness. Once you've done that, you're done. Frankish wants to go a little bit further to the left and say, well, I'm going to admit that people have experiences and seemings and explain why it seems to them that their experience has a phenomenal character. Well, I lost you yet. No, no. but you know, the, the numbnuts that I am, I just, every time we use the word phenomenal, I'm just so unfamiliar with that term in terms of it being used outside of that was a phenomenal play or something, you know, like ah, mm -hmm. uh, as an expression of, uh, you know, approval. Phenomenal. This is the redness of red, all that business, right? The pain of pain or painness of pain. I think that is fair. And I have a similar response. Even after having read a fair amount of the literature about this topic, 
I'm not convinced that phenomenal in this context is a well-defined concept. Oh, okay. That's new to me. I thought it would be because they use it so much. Well, a lot of people seem to think it is, and on both sides. I don't see Frankish or Dennett, for example, saying this, like, wait, you haven't even told me what phenomenal consciousness is. I don't even... I can dismiss it at step one because you haven't defined your terms. Mm. If I'm right that the genesis of at least the popularization of this term in contemporary literature is this paper by Ned Block. The distinction in that paper was between phenomenal consciousness and what he called access consciousness. Okay. Access consciousness is available for use in reasoning. It's the what you're aware of. It's what you can report upon. Mm-hmm. You know, I have access to it. But then... There's this other layer that he called phenomenal consciousness, which is the sensory experience, such as hearing, smelling, tasting, and having pains, that have this uh, first-person subjective qualitative character. What the, this is the move that they make, and I we can we're gonna I think talk about it a little okay. more later. They throw yeah. more terms at you, but if you sit in my perhaps our position, you might be concerned that, well, you can't explain one undefined or meaningless term by giving me seven. (laughs) If I don't know what a qualitative character is, that doesn't help. If I don't know what the hell first person is supposed to mean, or include that as a sensible concept, or if I don't know what quality, whatever. So that they'll just, they have a backpack full of terms to throw at you. It may be the case that they all just define each other in this tight circle which doesn't connect to anything else and rolls across science and intellectual development as a mere tumbleweed and is eventually lost to history, we can all cross our fingers. (laughs) All right. It's fair to me to be worried about that and be like, what the hell? They keep talking about phenomenal consciousness. I don't even know what it is. Okay. I don't either, but to do our best, let's just use the terms that they use, what it's like to experience these things and putting Ness on the end of everything. (laughs) So phenomenal consciousness is experiencing what it's like to have a qualia of redness. Fucking A. Jesus Christ. And we have to just try to do our best to play their language game and see where it goes. Or at least (laughs) those of us who want to engage with them other people might just be able to say, Jesus Christ, shake their head and go do some, uh, dig up some fossils. <laughs> Lucky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's another, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Because, I mean, when you, you even, like, the what it's like, I, I can kind of, okay. But then you throw in qualia, and of course, I've heard that term many a times. Uh, although, to be honest with you, I hadn't ever heard it until we met. But, uh. I'm sorry. You know. Yeah, me too. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, it it just yeah, fucking. Ugh. So I mean, you just got to be in it to to appreciate it in the way that it is appreciated. But it's just uh. so what it's like. Talk is the whole thing when it comes down to phenomenal consciousness. It seems to me that's the one I okay. Let's on. go with that one for tonight. Okay, and I, as far as I can tell. 
It's not a straw man. The problem is it seems like a straw man thing when we're doing it because, in my opinion, it's just so bad. <laughs> but I don't think it is a straw man. This is how these guys really talk. Okay. Frankish is, as far as I can tell, exhibiting what he calls strong illusionism in this paper. He's defending that. Strong illusionism is what? Quote, It is an illusion to think there are phenomenal properties at all, period, unquote. It is an illusion. So all this what it's like talk, wherever it comes from, it comes from the same place as thinking that you saw a lady get sawed in half on stage at halftime. Mm-hmm. Right. I understand that. So Frankish wants to introduce another concept here that as far as I know, we can attribute to him. Quote again. We can highlight the difference by introducing the notion of a quasi-phenomenal property. A quasi-phenomenal property is a non-phenomenal physical property that introspection typically misrepresents as phenomenal. Mm -hmm. In order to do this, I think we can probably just talk about, to oversimplify, but we're just a podcast, <laughs> brain states. Four-dimensional, time and space, extended, distributed, Brain states, or as Dennett likes to say, spike trains, neural spike trains. That would be mm -hmm. the quote-unquote non-phenomenal physical property, whatever the spike train is, or whatever the spike train has. So the spike train is the object, the quasi-phenomenal property, is whatever property the neural spike train has, that introspection, whatever the hell that is, typically misrepresents as phenomenal. Let's, to talk about that, assume, for the sake of argument, that introspection is as non-controversial as extraspection. Seeing shit with your <laughs> eyeballs. Right. Again, you know, he, he... And I'm just stacking up all of these terms that Frankish is willing to buy that I'm not. So, you know, seeming and whatever. And now he's accepting introspection as a non-problematic ability of human beings. Okay. I don't know what that's supposed to be precisely, but we're, he doesn't go in depth about defining it. We're just accepting that for now. We have the ability to introspect. When we do that, when we exercise our introspection, we look at spike trains. We typically misrepresent. We have a disposition, a habit, a... This is just how we have been conditioned, developed, taught. <laughs> but when we introspect sp neural spike trains... We have a tendency to misrepresent them as phenomenal characteristics such as redness. The, what the mind's eye is actually, quote-unquote, looking at is some electrochemical patterns in our nervous system. But what it tells us, what, that, what the mind's eye reports to whatever, the afferent, linguistically affected part of the nervous system that controls speech it says oh yeah what you what's going on in here is some redness when what's really going on in there is some acetylcholine morse code or whatever you know there's some chemicals bouncing back and forth across some synapses and there's some, you know that's what's happening but we have a tendency to interpret it or convey it as redness make sense yeah yeah keep going I unfortunately am having thoughts. <laughs>
As I understand it, the invocation of quasi-phenomenal properties is going to turn out to be the major player in Frankish's proposed solution to the illusion problem. Why does it, quote-unquote, seem as though we have phenomenal experience? Because there are, in brains, quasi-phenomenal properties. Physical properties that our nervous system itself tends to interpret as phenomenal when it is really merely electrochemical. Yeah, that's, again, there is, there's no, I don't think, major problems with electrochemical. We might still have issues with the word phenomenal. Yeah. Just from our, right? But, so what it makes me think of is he uses, he doesn't have very many figures. If It's just one, right? For the most part in this paper. The Penrose Triangle one. I look right over figures, man. Yeah, but yeah, yes. My God, I love that. Uh, uh, There's no words on this I'm part of the page. Man. Where's the words? I know, totally. You're like, nope. Well, in the Penrose Triangle, when you look at it, the way that they make it seem like, you know, the Penrose Triangle is supposed to seem like it's uh, doing the impossible or whatever, where the triangle is turning in on itself and you have all the different sides have various... Uh, degrees of shading based on maybe the incidence of some kind of light source, you know, where it's coming from. In the in the figure that is provided by Frankish in his paper, it's like it's coming from the right or whatever. He has these two little diagrams or whatever, cartoons or whatever it is, geometrical shapes side by side. I was thinking about all the things that you're kind of saying, and I know that when he talks about the quasi-phenomenology uh, or whatever, quasi-phenomenal properties, and that you know he accepts all these things in that you don't like, but he just brings them in or whatever, and he's trying to say something in particular. I think of it like maybe if you look at that Penrose triangle, if you actually were to construct the triangle like, I don't know, in PowerPoint or Adobe Illustrator or something like that, you would have perhaps the ability to draw one kind of uh, acutely angled L and make it a certain shade of gray. And you make another acutely angled L or whatever and make that an even darker shade of gray. And then you make another third one that's even darker in its shades of gray. And then you kind of turn them all around in a particular way and you put them together in such a way that it, it looks like this Penrose triangle. And the pieces that come together in the artistry of putting this shape together are themselves not very interesting. And if you see them for that in the construction of the Penrose Triangle, then you just go, oh, that's that weird uh, acute angled thing that's lighter gray. And then you've got this other one that's a little bit, you know, the middle ground gray. And then you've got the darker gray. And that's it. You just go, oh, it's just these three pieces together. But then the whole thing is that you can be tricked into seeing this triangle, you know? So I think when I'm hearing quasi phenomenal properties and that idea that it's something physical, but then you make this mistake or whatever in thinking that it's something else or, or the, the impression is something else other than what it is, but it's still just physical. It's just the three little acute angle things. That's all it is. And so, but somehow there's a mistake. And I think it, that is, my way of trying to understand <laughs> what Frankish might be saying here, I have totally put us on the off-roading 
uh, trajectory. I apologize. No, you haven't. This is the next thing is to get into examples. Right. I think that's what he wanted you to do. He think it sounds like you're saying you find this an apt example and helpful. Is that right? At least to, as to what he's trying to say. I don't have any opinion about whether I agree or not. I'm just trying to understand him. We are capable of drawing, quote-unquote, representing on a two-dimensional surface, on a piece of paper, this apparently three-dimensional object. The appearance of three-dimensionality comes from the way that we arrange some line segments and some shades of gray. Right. Because our brains have the tendency to attribute a darker shade to being either further away or downturned, turned away from the unidirectional light source, whatever. We can construct various illusionary pictures that give us the illusion that there could be a three-dimensional shape that is that shape, but when the engineer tries with nails and wood, they can't make it. That's what this other figure next to it is. The Gregundrum. Right. That one's called. The Penrose right. Triangles, the yeah. 2D, the named after Richard Gregory, is the other one. And that's the three-dimensional thing. Described in a certain way, it's not a triangle at all, but it's more like a horseshoe shape. Mm-hmm. But that if one slowly turns it, and if you view it from the right angle, all of a sudden it does appear this three-dimensional object built out of some material does appear to the observer as though it kind of clicks in. And now, oh, yeah, there it is. There's the three-dimensional version of a Penrose triangle. But then as soon as it continues to rotate, you're like, oh, now it's just nothing. It's three pieces of wood in a U-shape or whatever. There might be features that are only appreciable from a very precise and artificially designed vantage point. Well, here's what I was thinking about with the Penrose Triangle, is that on the one hand, you can see the pieces individually. So something in your brain is able to do that using the visual cortex and and other interpretive centers, you know, the secondary brain areas, I can't ever, secondary sensory areas and stuff like that. So you got your primaries and your se- secondary. But what if, and I'm no <laughs> neuroscientist, But what if you've got also the part of, you know, secondary sensory areas that is like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm in charge of depth, you know, or or like, you know what I mean? Like, I know we're doing a little too much homunculus, but like, just imagine some network setup that is connected to the primary sensory areas that are related to vision and, you know, receiving information that way. What if you've got those that work with depth and those that work with just, you know, individual pieces or whatever it is? And there's just like this dissonance between the two. And then that becomes the illusion is that it's like, that's the trick, the song, the person in half. It's like, you don't see it for the pieces. You're just seeing it for the whole because that part of your brain is like taken over, you know? And it's just like, no, no, it's This is too like, you know, like, and then that depth thing is just like, maybe another part of your brain comes in and it's just like, this doesn't check out (laughs) you know know, it's just like the depth guy is like no but it has to you know meanwhile the one that could figure out just looking at the pieces or whatever is like oh yeah that's kind of what i was thinking that's the illusion is that you've got it's like a factory where you're making something and it still fits 
the you know whatever the the in the manufacturing line the piece still fits the whatever new gadget thing it has to be attached to it or whatever but it's all wrong and it totally will explode or whatever but you just keep putting it in because you're like well it fits and it even though that's the wrong place to put it or you know something like that you know what i mean like that's kind of what i thought might be some way to now i I think that's probably about right okay that this would relate to the quasi-phenomenal property in that aspect of the phrase where he mentions typically misrepresents. So these two-dimensional visual illusions, like the those arrows, where there are two e- equidistant line segments with acute and obtuse angles on their ends, and then we have a typical misrepresentation that one is longer than the other, though they aren't. So optical illusions are sort of an example, an analogous example to a quasi-phenomenal property. Our brain is built in such a way that we typically misrepresent them. So can I ask a question? When we say represent versus like say interpret, what do we mean by that then? Is there a very specific use of the word represent in the context that we're talking about that interpret just isn't the same? It's like, no, interpret means something else. Or it might, you know, how would you go about thinking or explaining that to me? As with most things in philosophy, that's a long and complicated road. But (laughs) to attempt to extemporaneously respond in a somewhat useful way, representation and interpretation are different in this respect. One interprets a representation. So a a representation or a symbolic object is something that one can provide an interpretation of. Representation is a sort of result of what they call a transduction. And this is another way that Dennett likes to phrase it and Frankish references sometimes. Transduction is the rendering of information in one medium or mode into another so that when an amplification system takes a vibrating coil of metal, like a guitar string, and digitally sends it down a wire, that's the representation. So you got a string of zeros and ones gotcha. that have been transduced out of a vibrating string. Then, before it reaches the speaker, you have to interpret okay. those zeros and ones into something that can be registered I think that an ampli- uh, like a guitar amplifier is an example of a double transduction. You transduce from the vibrating guitar string into some kind of electrical medium, which can be sent down your little cord that you plugged in, and then it has to be exported by the cone, the vibrating speaker, in a, in another way. But anyway, that that's the does that help at all with like a representation? Yeah, no, that totally helps. And then it, and then maybe it's a triple transduction because then it has to vibrate through the molecules in the air. And then it has to vibrate in your ear. And then it goes from your ear to your brain. It becomes these spike trains or whatever. Uh-huh. So when Dennett talks about it, he has what he calls the myth of double transduction. Oh. There's the first transduction between your sensory organ and your neural spike trains. Then people who believe in phenomenal consciousness, or this thing that Dennett caricatures with the term the Cartesian theater, this place where it all comes together and is appreciated by the homunculus, mm-hmm. that we that there's some kind of movie playing in your brain with technicolor and sound and everything's happening in there. 
But then there has to be somebody appreciating that and watching that in order for the show to mean anything. Yeah. Dennett is saying in nervous systems, in human perception, there is no second transduction. Once you have gone from photons with a given wavelength or air molecules vibrating your cilia and eardrums or whatever the anatomical terms are, once you've got it from the external world into the nervous system, it never needs to change again into some phenomenal what-its-likeness medium because then that just leads to the infinite regress. Then there would have to be someone else who appreciated that. Mm. We can just distribute across space and time in the brain the result of the spike trains that we have evolved to reliably correlate with survival and reproductive enhancing behaviors, and that's all you need to do. You never need to go into this internal realm of technicolor that then is introspected that has a what it's likeness. Yeah. I, I'm just so unfamiliar with a lot of those phrases in the context of philosophy of mind, I guess. So then I get, I get but lost. But did this at all that. help to answer your original question? Oh, yeah, no, I'm good. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Let's, uh, so that's let's one of the analogies. The analogy that works really well for me that I really liked, Frankish quotes from Dennett when he talks about, well, I'll just quote it. Illusionists offer various analogies to illustrate their view. Dennett compares consciousness to the user illusions created by the graphical interfaces through which we control our computers. The icons, pointers, files, and locations displayed on a computer screen correspond only in an abstract metaphorical way to the structures within the machine, and by manipulating them in intuitive ways, we can control the machine effectively. In other words, skeuomorphic design works for people. We can illustrate and display visually a folder and put some little white strips in it or whatever, and that can indicate to a user, oh, yeah, I've got some files in there. And what did I call that? Oh, that's Dottler's Philosophy Master uh, Audio. Okay, that's what I need to... I'll click on that with this pointer. None of that is relevant to the churnings of electrons inside the computer and the memory registers and even the source code, let alone the machine code, in there. Developers intelligently design an interface that allows us to, without knowledge of the details, accomplish our projects when playing with computers. And I think that that one is a good example for this quasi-phenomenal properties thing. We are the sort of system that just can't, or at best, it's extremely impractical, to engage with computers by exchanging binary strings of code with them. That's, it's much more efficient to double-click a folder. So maybe that's what brains are like. It's extremely inefficient to attempt to operate on the level of spike trains. It's more efficient to abstract up a bunch of levels, invent a characteristic that isn't really in the world, but approximates the world well enough, it's heuristic, it helps us behave well enough not to die. So let's just do that. Yeah. I mean, I I appreciate the analogy just 
someone just says it and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, but when we dive into it and we try and give it some kind of evolutionary aspects, I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I'm not saying no. I'm just saying like, <laughs> that seems like a really difficult, I won't say hard, mm-hmm. but a difficult problem. Sorry, I, I, if there was a camera, I would have looked into it at that. I would have broken the fourth wall there. What are you saying is the difficulty? Um, the idea of like, why do, why not make some kind of graphical user interface in the brain that then is good enough, stands in for whatever is, you know, being sensed, you know, whatever the sensory systems are uh, bringing in. I'm just thinking, like, well, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't even begin to know why that, how that would come about. And, you know, I would just, I would need to do a lot of reading into, like, animal nervous systems. And what reading I have done, I haven't come across anything like that. Because typically, as we've talked about, science is not very intrinsic. You know, it's a very extrinsic type of thing. So even then... Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like I get it. I totally get it. I'm not saying I like knew stupid or anything like that. I just don't know how we get there from here with the explanation. That's just that's just me talking. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily, <laughs> philosophers of mine don't need to do that. <laughs> Apparently, that's someone else's job. They can sit back Jesus in their armchair fuck. and say, "Oh my god, could you guys take you guys care of this so much? Part? Go do this." Okay. <laughs> I hate you guys so much. It's unbelievable. All we have to do is sit back, crack a beer. passing day, it gets worse. And say... It just does. The basic illusionist claim is that introspection delivers a partial distorted view of our experiences, misrepresenting complex physical features as simple phenomenal ones. Punch. I think that's well stated. Yeah, no, that's the that's the thing about a lot of this stuff is there's that if you can get into the headspace, then you're in, you know, you can't like rear your head out and then go back in and come back out of philosophy of mind and then go back in like it's it's too much. Oh, I do it every day. You just got to learn. You're fine. You'll be fine. <coughs> you, you sound confident. <laughs> to add another piece to the Frankish to the illusionism to trying to get people to understand the position. He goes on to talk about another wonderful, helpful sarcasm. <laughs> Chalmers' addition, the philosophical zombie, which is the behaviorally indistinguishable agent which lacks all phenomenal experience. We've probably talked about it at least in episode 12 and maybe some other ones, but that's the the basics of the concept. Did I say enough that people get it? Yeah. I want to, can I just be like, yes, but Harland, I already possess phenomenal consciousness, so how could I ever be a zombie? Begging the question is sometimes the correct (laughs) response, a Strassen. (laughs) Philosophers of mind do that. I find it reprehensible, but it's it's an option. But what Frankish wants to do here is use the zombie thing. Okay, so he writes, Are illusionists claiming that we are phenomenal zombies? Zombies are presented as creatures with no inner life whose experience is completely blind-sighted. Illusionists will not agree this is a good description. Frankish doesn't want to bite the zombic bullet. 
the thing that Dennett does sometimes and not others. Another place that he's in a lot of hot water with a lot of uncharitable critics. They can find him writing, yes, we are all phenomenal zombies in certain places and resisting it in others and saying, of course, there is consciousness. Frankish's move to get out of it is to invent a second definition account of what it's like talk. Mm. So if it wasn't bad enough that we had it in the first place, Frankish <laughs> wants to come up with the second one. Like One more, folks. He writes, but aren't phenomenal properties precisely what makes experience like something that's certainly a common way of construing what it's like talk but there's another way so what's the frankish way (laughs) illusionists can say that one's experiences are like something if one is aware of them in a functional sense courtesy of introspective representational mechanisms Indeed, this is a plausible reading of the phrase. Experiences are like something for a creature, just as external objects are like something for it, if it mentally represents them to itself. And in this sense, there is something it is like to be a zombie. So we're going to call what it's like talk in the Nagel sense, in the original sense, in the hard, realist, consciousness sense, what it's like, number one. Frankish sense is what it's like, number two. (laughs) That's the sense where it's like even zombies have that. So what the hell is he saying Uh with his version? Experiences are like something if you're aware of them in a functional sense, courtesy of introspective representational mechanism. Okay. So the way that I phrase it is, if a sober, awake, alert human being is seated in the football stadium, they can, on request, describe on the cell phone what that is like to someone at home with the TV off. They can say, oh yeah, well, Aaron Rodgers is in the shotgun and the score is this and the weather and it's windy and it's 74 degrees. Well, it's never that hot in Green Bay, is it? Whatever. (laughs) They have access (laughs) in a certain sense to what the game is like, what going on they know the score they know the weather they know the players they know the positions they know what the yard line blah blah blah. so they can tell you what it's like to be at the game Uh uh-huh that's what i think frankish means with his version if you have cognitive access to the contents whatever the spike trains are representing then you can tell what it's like to be aware of what the football game what's happening in the football game it's a bit like higher order thought theory that you're conscious of something if you are conscious that you're conscious the kind of self-awareness strange loop type talk i think okay i think this is an appeal to common language maybe doesn't it sound okay for me to use the phrase what it's like in this more restricted sense and if so, let's just do that. Does any of that make sense yet, or should we talk about it more? Talk about Frankish's stuff a little bit more. Or, you know, try and find a new angle. Experiences are like something for a creature, just as external objects are like something, if it mentally represents them to itself. For Frankish, mentally representing something to oneself is to have some degree of transduced, isomorphic, nervous structure 
four-dimensional structure that represents that you know first you have the presentation out there on the football field then you have the representation in your brain you know just to drastically oversimplify say you have a set of neurons that are all firing that are literally in the shape of a pigskin of a football <laughs> that would be the representation of the uh, you got the object in the world then you've got the object in the brain which is the nerves that are in this oblong ellipse whatever it is mm-hmm. then the representation has to be two or four something and his answer for that at least in this paper is very very hand wavy and it's just like there doesn't have to be some homunculus in the cartesian theater observing it it's just that it has to be functionally causally efficacious to some other set of distributed subpersonal subsystems it's not like it has to be an agent that views and interprets the neural representation it just has to play the correct functional behavioral role so there's an event and it recognizes that it recognizes an event is that what you're trying to say that probably works yeah let's try that there are lots of little things that i have learned along the way but i don't know if they apply you know what i mean so that's my problem is because i'm i'm not familiar enough with a lot of the language and so i'm never sure what to do with them in these contexts. So I don't know if I'd just be wasting our time or if I would actually be helping maybe get a better picture of what it is that Frankish is saying for myself and to see if that sheds any new light on for you or not. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you know what I'm saying. Hopefully by now we know a little bit about what illusionism is supposed to be as a position. Okay. And contrasted it with realism. The people who just want to say, no, there literally are phenomenal feels inside my head that I have direct private access to. Okay. So what's, you know, where's Frankish's arguments? In the next section. <laughs> so he starts out with a couple of arguments against realism and then does a couple of positive arguments for illusionism. Okay. The first one, the first anti-realist argument is... I take it there is a presumption in favor of conservatism in science. The principle of conservatism should apply with special force, I suggest, when the pressure for radical innovation comes from a parochial anthropocentric source like introspection. Uh, what? To go back to the psychokinesis example or, uh-huh. you know, from, the, from before, if you have this really robust realist who wants to claim phenomenal consciousness exists... And then you say, well, what, why do you think so? What is your argument, realist? And they say, my argument comes from introspecting. I looked in there and I saw redness. I, ha- I experienced phenomena. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, phenomenal consciousness exists because I just saw some. Again, it's like the more. Here's one hand, here's another. Here is a qualia of redness i just went in there and saw some if you would only quit being a dick eliminativist you could see it too just do it look in there you've got them in there and frankish is saying well all right you can attempt to make that move but don't we have the value premise in science 
that conservatism is a good thing. We want to move slowly. We want to respect the edifices that we have already established. We want to think they're there for good epistemic reasons. And it's going to take a lot to motivate me to modify my ontology to the extent that you request I do so. Right. I have to now add an entire new dimension to the universe. I have to either say that all matter has a, as Whitehead might say it, a conscious pole and a physical pole, or I have to say that there's some version of dualism, then no, there are two substances, or... Yeah, no, no, I get it. The the scientist is saying, okay, you went and did a Stuart Smalley daily affirmation in the mirror, and we're like, is it red? Yes, I think it's red, and then that's enough, and I have to now change everything to appease your... I don't even know what to call it, but okay, yes. Yeah, you guys need more than just appealing to introspection. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I just, I always just think about like, again, some of my own personal like advisors and whatnot, you know, like introspection, Jesus Christ, they'd like, they'd leave you on the mountaintop for that. And they'd just be like, see you, kid. It's nice knowing you. Anyway. You're making this even worse, man. You, I already think <laughs> the silliest thing that a human being can think, and then you're telling me, oh, yeah, well, pretty much all of us scientists already think that, and if you attempted to make this argument, they would flunk you or something. Well, I mean, if you attempted to try and make it legitimate or something, if you're just having a conversation, I think most people are like, yeah, I'm tired. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Okay, you looked inside, and you, or you know, want to do art and talk about the color red or whatever the fuck. I don't, you know what I mean. But like, if you're trying to do it in like an academic setting, then no, no, I don't think so. Anyway, well, you're in the wrong department. Or they would just shrug and be like, I don't know. In the philosophy department, you can make a name for yourself by doing this. Argument number two: non-physical properties can have no effects in a world that is, as we say, closed under causation. As ours appears to be, the mind sciences show no independent need to refer to exotic physical processes, such as quantum mechanics, so the threat of epiphenomenalism hangs over radical theories. Epiphenomenalism being the position that there are physical objects and there are mental objects, Physical alterations can have mental effects, but no mental phenomena have physical effects. And then the this, again, to me, has echoes of Cartesian substance dualism, which most people are content to abandon for what they call the interaction problem. How or why should we believe that whatever this mind is can move things around in the brain. Hofstetter's who shoves whom around, and, you know. They call physics closed under causation. Every physical event has a physical cause. I think that's what closed under causation means. And I think this argument is accepted by most, and that's part of why panpsychism is on the rise, because everybody realizes that dualist answers suck, but they also respect physicalism, but they also are very convinced through intuition and introspection that consciousness exists, so then they have to say that all physical objects are conscious. And then, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So those are two of the arguments opposed to the realists, some of the positive arguments for illusionism. 
If people's claims and beliefs about something can be fully explained as arising from causes that have no connection to the thing itself, then this is a reason for discounting them and regarding the thing as illusory. We do not need to appeal to non-physical properties in order to explain our behavior, including our assertions and beliefs about our own conscious experiences. Our claims and beliefs about consciousness afford no evidence for the truth of phenomenal realism. And next to this paragraph, I get to write a whole bunch of stars and up arrows and exclamation point. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you're talking my language, Frankish. This is great. <laughs> and i it's basically the Occam's razor point, I think. Yeah, no. What we care about and what we agree about are the reports, our claims and beliefs about consciousness. Those are themselves no evidence for the truth. They're mere data that I then need to explain. If I can explain them without invoking any abstruse metaphysical objects, then I should do that. And if I can, we're done. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if all of that can be done, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not an Occam extremist myself, but I'm not saying you are, but I mean, just how I came up with the way to phrase it. But like, I'll still leave room for the for you know an Occam approach to be incorrect. Mm -hmm. But oh, of course it could. You be. know, it's just that this is a value that we use. But if you're going to move forward with well, what are we going to do next? We're neuroscientists or something like that. And you want to know how to make a decision about the thing. Well, maybe applying something like parsimony to your situation, to your problem, is going to help you continue to be productive rather than trying to chase something that, I mean, I just don't know how, how easy that's going to be to find the redness of red in an fMRI machine. But you see, you can't because it's only accessible from the first person point of view. Well, then we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Then, uh, like, just fucking dial tone, you know? No. But this is a thing. I'm just telling you, I agree that is not an acceptable move, but people do it. <laughs> the final brief argument in favor was just a, it's a similar kind of value-based parsimonious one. Frankish writes, In general, apparent anomalousness is evidence for illusion. If a property resists explanation in physical terms, or is detectable only from a certain perspective, which is what we were just saying phenomenal consciousness is, mm -hmm. then the simplest explanation is that it's illusory. If there's even a remote possibility that we are mistaken about the existence of phenomenal consciousness, which it seems that there is, anything's possible, then there is a strong abductive inference to the conclusion that we are in fact mistaken, in part because we have no introspective way of checking the accuracy of our introspective representations. End of quote. And, by definition, we have no objective or scientific or third-person way. That's the whole point of them. If you can't check them introspectively, because you, all you can do is assert them, you can't provide evidence, you can only assert them, and then by definition they're inaccessible to objective science, then, like, what the fuck are we doing? Yep. It's just, well, no, it's like, when it's presented in that way, it sounds like cryptozoology or whatever. Okay, in what sense? 
in the sense that there's no way to there's no quote unquote smoking gun it's not a smoking gun but Neil deGrasse Tyson would say this about people who said that they were abducted by UFOs or whatever and experimented on um he'd say okay well next time you know if right. you, you next time you, bring me an ashtray bring me an ashtray yeah or whatever like just grab something and you know I like this analogy yeah stick it up your butt or wherever you need to, well maybe they're already in there so stick it down your mouth or something under your armpit and bring it back and say, look at this craziness. And we can all be like, holy shit, you were, you know, or whatever. Or something. Yeah, smuggle us out some evidence. Smuggle us out some evidence from deep inside that introspective chamber. Yes, I request that too. So that's kind of what I was thinking. So it has Just that they, feel. They can't do yeah, it. Yeah, that has that feel. But that seems like, okay, well then, don't tell the IDWers. But I'm kind of thinking like, get out of the academy, you know, or whatever. Like, come on. You know, this is uh, this is for like the the Buddhism institutes and shit. I don't know where everybody wears robes, but no one's really practicing anything. They're just sort of smiling a lot. Sorry, maybe I'm a little bit of a jerk tonight. <laughs> just like <laughs> anyway, sorry. I don't like being overly like you know, but it just has that. No, you're a very charitable fellow. I am typically I'm very charitable. So. I get that's the complaint I get a lot. So why this? You know, by this point, when we go through it with these two hosts, and we're looking at this paper that's in favor of evolutionism, we're like, "Well, duh." <laughs> He's uh, Frankish spends a section next in the paper examining more closely what the potential problems are. What do the other people say? Mm-hmm. So we can run through those. I think it may be brief because we probably agree. That it's unpersuasive. But we've got some more David Chalmers. He says, The most basic objection to illusionism. I wanted to say illuminism. (laughs) But then we're back to Robert Anton Wilson. We're not doing that. (laughs) The basic objection to illusionism is that it denies the data. Mm. To be sure, if all that needed to be explained were the detectable marks of phenomenal consciousness, the judgments, reports, reactions, dispositions, and so on, it would be more economical to adopt an illusionist view. But the objection goes, that is not all that needs to be explained. Phenomenal consciousness is itself a datum. Phenomenal properties are not theoretical posits introduced to explain data, but are themselves core data. Nope. Why not? Well, it's just the reports. It's just the I was abducted by any aliens and I didn't bring back an ashtray. I'm sorry. I was, though. You know, it seems to me that's not data. That's There's nothing there. You know, that was the one thing that the Gould and Eldridge said about, you know, okay, yeah, you can't see how quickly lineages evolve in the rock record because... You know, it just happens. Suddenly, they're they're there. But what we do have is the fact that they once they do appear, they're there for a really long time. So then their their mantra was stasis is data. And so, but at least they had something. We didn't have the gradual changes from one you know parent lineage into a daughter lineage or whatever in the rock record. But hey, we do have the sudden appearance of something that's different, that looks similar. 
and then it persists for a super long time on its own. So there's your data. But telling me, then it's, it, all it becomes, it always just immediately becomes the reports. Phenomenal properties, the reports of phenomenal properties can be data, right? I mean, that's, I think, what we would yes. say. But the, that's what we all agreed to. Right, but the phenomenal properties themselves, it's the ashtray on the UFO. You know, it's like, it's bring it back. You know, like, let's, you know, get us something that we can work with. And to me, now that I've already, I'm associating conscious acceptors or whatever as being on a par with somebody who makes claims about being abducted by ufos it kind of reminds me of the idea that richard Feynman had he called cargo cult science which is just it's a practice that looks like science but it's it's not it doesn't do anything it has no real methodology it's not it isn't science. You know what I'm saying? Cargo cults would like, it'd be like they'd get into a plane. Maybe they made it out of cardboard or something and they pretend to fly or something. Like, I don't know. That's probably not a good example. But the idea is that you're you're practicing something but not actually doing it. It almost seems to me, and I'm not saying that this is exactly the best analogy, but it has that cargo cult science quality. It's like, hey, you're denying our data, phenomenal properties. And it's like, what what data? What data? Where's the ashtray from the introspection? That's, you know, I can't do anything. You know, you're wanting to, to smuggle in all these terms, you know, cognition, while at the same time denying physics. And then... Chalmers saying you're denying my data and it's just like what data like it just sounds like a buzzword that you're employing to be able to keep this baby alive what I hear you saying and I agree if I interpret you correctly (laughs) that this is a methodological objection we don't admit of testimony in this court with these standards of evidence right because of the trial, the sort of trial we're having, you have to meet a given standard, and providing mere testimony is insufficient. You can't just tell me and win. Yeah. Oh yeah, I I saw him do it. Right. Well, okay. That so you claim, but that doesn't. That's not sufficient evidence. Well, not when you're invoking something like science by talking about data. Or using the word cognitive or something like that. You're, it seems to me like you're trying to seem, you want it both ways. You want to deny physicalism or something like that. But at the same time, still talk about cognition or whatever. Like, And I'm just thinking like, but I would say that cognition comes more from that tradition of physicalism than it does come from Mysterianism or anything. And then denying the data, again, all that is data in any of this, because you can't get the ashtray or whatever, is the report. And no one's denying that, right? So it's just, anyway, I'm sorry, I've probably gone on this too long, but it, it does irk me when people do that. Because you're, it's the same thing with the imitation, the great silliness. It's like, we stop trying to use like Dennett's voice to say things. Like, I don't know, it just smacks of that to me. Not being a person who's anything but kind of a fly on the wall. Just this move where he just claims phenomenal properties are not theoretical posits introduced to explain other data but are themselves core data. 
I just don't think that ought be considered a legal move for methodological reasons. When you report that I saw some redness, there being a phenomenal property in your conscious experience would be, to me, one theoretical claim as to why you gave that report. We agree that you uttered the sentence, I experienced a red qualia. Okay, but that just now becomes a neutral piece of data that we can explain with multiple theories. The realist theory is, oh, I really did experience a phenomenal property, and that's what caused my report. If we play in that ballpark, then the illusionists or eliminativists get to develop alternative theories, and then we weigh them in light of our overall intellectual climate and value set and determine which one we prefer. But just to say, nuh-uh, mine's not even a theory. <laughs> it's just, it's core data itself. Is I don't even understand how a thoughtful human being could make that move. Well, especially after we've already discussed what some views of science, for instance, are, which is you've got that theory of practice model data thing. You know, how do you make sense of data without a theory? How can there be core data of anything? <clears throat> they have to be set within some framework or context of some kind for you to go and collect them in the first place. Oh, right. The whole theory-ladenness and underdetermination and ceteris exactly. paribus and all these other things. Yeah, we haven't even got into those yet, and we still are ready to dismiss this. Yeah. Frankish's version of responding to this one, again, is different than what we were coming up with and is more moderate and diplomatic. Frankish says, well, there's a sense in which illusionists can agree with you, Chalmers. <laughs> it is a datum that phenomenal properties exist as intentional objects. Our introspective reports define a notional introspective world, which is as we take it to be. And I think he also probably gets that strategy from Dennett. And this is one of the ways of dealing with the metaphysics of fictional worlds and the truth status of claims like Sherlock Holmes lives at 88 Baker Street or whatever his fucking address is supposed to be. That's what a notional world is supposed to be. You know, we have these fictions and then statements are true of the fiction. So Frankish's move here is supposed to say that okay. the putative phen phenomenal properties do exist, but they exist as fictions. And so when you're giving res reports of them, you are reporting upon having read Conan Doyle or whatever. Right, that's contorted as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it is, because it's like, oh, what the hell? You know, like, that's, uh, you say I'm charitable. All right, well, I guess you're with me again on this one. That's always been the what I take to be the largest bone I would have to pick with Dennett is that he often makes that move. He does it with free will, with consciousness, with everything. Well, let me just redefine it in such a way that I can still honestly utter the sentence, well, of course, people have free will. It's just different than you thought it was. Frankish is saying here, well, okay, sure, you have phenomenal properties. They're just different than what you thought they were. And I'm not a fan of that general move for semantic reasons, and that's probably a topic for another day. Probably. If realists are to maintain that phenomenal consciousness is a datum, 
They must say that we have a special kind of epistemic access to it, which excludes any possibility of error. Chalmers holds that we are directly acquainted with phenomenal properties. I pause to hear Ryan say, no, again. <laughs> which I hope you would, because this is just, I don't even, again, I can't comprehend it. I don't understand it, other than the drastic chimpy bias that they're already dogmatically convinced that they are this so they have to say something you don't get to take your favorite concept and say yeah but mine is special (laughs) i have special epistemic access to this and i'm directly acquainted with the phenomenon i just think that's thrown out immediately because like you're saying with the alien spaceship and whatever you know right it just if we allow that move, it's a reductio ad absurdum right away. You can make any claim and just call and say you have special epistemic access to it. Mm-hmm. You could be the charlatan on stage claiming to be talking to deceased relatives and say, well, I have special epistemic access to the beyond. It's just fucking it's garbage. Yeah, there is that unfortunate uh, association that I almost immediately have, which is the sort of like the mind reader, the tarot card ufos cryptozoology it's all kind of there another common objection to illusionism is to state that there is no gap between illusion and reality this is one that searle likes to talk about where consciousness is concerned the existence of the appearance is the reality if it seems to me that i'm having a conscious experience then i am having a conscious experience and I think... Oh, let's just move on from that. That sounds a lot like I think, therefore, I am to me. It's similar in structure. Um, what's your super brief reason to move on from that? Well, it's not... It doesn't even sound like any good time has been spent on the point. If it seems like it is, then it must be. I mean, come on. No. That's just a... That's... I don't know. Personally, I did. there's nothing interesting there. That's just confirming... Uh, what you already think or something like that you know it's a it's a weird if something seems already con- if you, if you it seems like i have a conscious then i must be conscious or whatever like I've, i have a you know consciousness or something i think i see what's going on because to me my response to that is well it depends on what seems means and i think you're operating on that definition of seems that we encountered somewhere in the first half hour where for you seems just as a way to express a current opinion or something. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, <laughs> the definition of seeming includes a conscious, experiential, not necessarily phenomenal. It's not like seeming has a taste or color, but that it would have some kind of introspectively accessible conscious character. So I can, I can see why they say that, because there's this other definition of seeming that you don't apparently operate with most of the time. And I would say as well that I think that most people would operate with. Hmm. That's what you were like, I think most people would think, and I'm like, I think philosophers of mind would think that, because that seems to be a little phrase you guys like to toss around with each other. But I mean, if somebody just you know, at the accounting office is like, well, it seems to me like the numbers are off. <laughs> I don't think they're like, there's this phenomenal consciousness thing going on in my head. I I don't 
know if they unpack it like that. <laughs> you know, we're like this and then that. And then like, I just think that they're like, eh, I'm uh, detecting. I know what you're saying. I'm familiar with it in that sense. Yeah. The dictionary yeah, definition of, of seem is give the impression or sensation of having a particular quality. Mm. In that sense, you know, we've got impressions, sensations, qualities. I think that it's a reasonable interpretation of seems to do the more consciousness realist philosopher of mind sense where seeming gives the day to the realist already. Like, if there are any seemings, then I win, because I'm. that's my whole account, is that it's there is a way things seem to me. I've just never thought of it like that, I guess. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe other people are more inclined in the philosophy of mind version. I'm impressed enough by it that I think it's another reason to argue too Frankish that he shouldn't make the move that he makes. And I think that he's impressed by it because he does make this move. So Frankish's response to this one is, uh, This is often presented as a crushing objection, but it is far from compelling. It turns on what we mean by seeming to have a greenish experience. If we mean having an introspective experience with the same phenomenal feel as greenish and trivial... There is no distinction between seeming and reality, but this, of course, is not what illusionists mean. They mean introspectively representing oneself as having a greenish experience, and one can do this without having a greenish experience. And I'm pretty sure that you're just like, let's move on. I don't know what any of that was. You <laughs> yeah. don't like this kind of talk. <laughs> I hate this kind of talk. Isn't that funny? Yeah, so just ignore uh, Ryan for a second. I agree with Frankish uh, that one can introspectively represent oneself as having a greenish experience without having one. But I don't think that the way to go about this is to change the definition of seems. Leave seeming what the dictionary says it means and what most people, other than Ryan apparently, <laughs> what, most what I think most people think it means. Leave the definition it's same and just say that there are no seemings. Why does he want to preserve seemings I don't get it. But in part because Ryan doesn't care, we won't dwell on that any longer. <laughs> I don't. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. If I hear the word greenish one more time, I'm going to fucking bang my head against the wall. Yeah, we put ness on the end or ish on the end. Oh, my God. And you're just like, ish. <laughs> All right. What's another argument against illusionism? It's. I think most of them come down to basically the same thing. Well, if there's an illusion, there has to be an audience who is subject to the illusion. I just thought that the illusion is just more about the... It's more about dissonance. It's not about an audience. It's about just operating on a particular... You know, like if you're going to make a decision about something or whatever. There's a dissonance. You know, you're looking at that prim primrose or whatever, the Penrose Triangle or something. You know, like there's some dissonance there between potentially various parts of your brain that are doing different things, but kind of roughly at the same time. And so you need a little more thought and care put into addressing that dissonance. But if you don't, you know, have any way to know that it's 
happening, then you're just going to operate as if there's this crazy triangle thing that loops in on itself and it, I can't explain it or whatever, you know, or not even in that way. You just be like, oh yeah, the crazy triangle. <laughs> you like, that's kind of how I think of it. It's just audience. What audience? It's just dissonance. You're the audience, the whole body, you know, like, bleh, you know, anyway. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that's basically Frankish's response to say there doesn't have to be right. some sort of homuncular, agentive, personal, unified agent who is the appreciator of the illusion or the audience to the illusion, but that it can be the Denetian. What did you talk about earlier? The ro- uh, Of course, we're, we yeah. have a soul, but it's made of a bunch of tiny robots. Just tiny robots. Continue to break <laughs> things down and distribute them across space and time in the brain until it becomes constituted by operations that are simple enough to be accomplished by a machine, such as, at least metaphorically, if not literally, a computer or a bunch of logic gates or whatever. I can be on or off. I can be firing or not firing. And then once you mm. distribute it down into the tiny robots, that no longer is a problem. I think that response works. Do you also? Yeah. But that we don't even need to make that response if we don't go so far as to admit that there are illusions in the first place. Oh. So what is your take? Ooh, big time. What's your big time take? Not your little take. This ain't a short. What's your big time take, Harland? I'm very confused by... <laughs> The prevalence of hostility to eliminativism, defined as the claim, the provocative claim that consciousness doesn't exist, or the defensible claim we ought not include consciousness in our ontology at this time. Because to me, it seems to be a resultant of an argument whose pieces are all things that most people do accept. What were you about to say? You said it seems to you. <laughs> and I was like, ah, what did you mean by that? Anyway, sorry. I just, it happens. So I think that there is an argument to be made who includes only pieces that most people do accept so that its conclusion is apparently so abhorrent to people confuses me. Uh, can I say, why does there need to be a conclusion then? Why can't you just have pieces and you don't have an answer? Uh, what? But the, because of it being a polemic against what most people in my culture already do claim and say and adopt and abide by, and I want them to stop it? Does that answer that question? I guess. It'd be nice if we didn't even have to talk about it. You could make an argument of this form who had a conclusion that included almost anything. You know, alien ashtrays could be in the conclusion of this argument. You name it. It's just that we bother to state the conclusion with consciousness because consciousness is a popular posit on Earth 2018. But here's the general form of an argument that works against ontology of most types, you know, that I would just call a metaphilosophical argument. Okay. If the burden of proof is always on the proponent, in other words, if you want to make a claim, 
a positive claim, especially ontological, X exists, then you assume the burden to argue for that posit to the rest of us. And if the burden of proof means that you have to provide a semantics and a persuasive ontological argument, in other words, answer what we on the Dottler's philosophy call the two great questions, what do you mean and why should we think so? So if that's what having the burden of proof comes down to, if neither of these have been satisfied by said proponents, in this case, the consciousness realists, then we don't include consciousness in our model. End of story. Like, this is similar to just being an Occamite parsimony argument or whatever. If you want to claim something, you have the burden. If the burden means tell me what the thing is and then establish why I should include it in my model, if you can't do those things, we don't put it in. It's parsimony plus burden of proof plus the kind of, as Frankish was calling it, the conservatism, or I might call it the holism of intellectual edifices. They, to some extent, stand and fall together. There's a coherence aspect to them plus a general skepticism about things in the sense of prove it, show me. And those four things are all common and not silly. Those are things that most people, in my interpretation, are willing to accept. That is all one needs to be an eliminativist. No one has told me what consciousness is and why I should believe in it for a bunch of the reasons that we went through earlier in the meeting. When they do attempt to do so, all they do is provide this little hermeneutical circle of terms that refer to each other, but don't connect out to the rest of our edifice. They don't connect to science in any other way. It's based apparently only on things like intuition, introspection, testimony, these things that we, in other respects, do not think are conclusive ontological arguments for anything. Eliminativism should be the default. It's not even, not only is it not silly, to me it seems clear. Mm -hmm. What do you think, does that argument mean anything to you, or what do you think? When I asked you why you have to have a conclusion from the pieces of the model or whatever, or, I mean, not model, but just you have Different, I don't know, pieces. It seems to me <laughs> there's the work of just, you know, say, doing theory. You're taking some ideas, you're putting them together, and you're coming up with some statement. In science, we would just say hypothesis. I don't know what you guys would say in philosophy. You say a lot of things, I'm not really quite sure exactly. But eliminativism, to me, it it's sort of like, well... Why not? Why do we have to throw out the model? Like, I'm not saying I approve of it, but why do why do we have to? You know, not in, you know, we can have one model where we don't include it, and another where we do, and then you know, in the rather than having a null thing where we reject or accept or whatever or fail to reject, which eliminativism the way you've talked about it at least in to me seems very kind of like well reject the null or. I cannot reject it or whatever, you know, like it seems very kind of hard line. 
Whereas we've talked about multiple working hypotheses, whatever the model is, I don't know what the model is, that does or doesn't include consciousness or any other stuff. Uh, it's just there. Why is there a choice wherein once the choice has been made, one thing has been completely removed? Yeah, that's not what I mean to be saying. Okay, good. It's just an existential pressing type of thing. Uh, like, again, if this were a court of law, we have to bang the gavel, register our judgment, and move on to the next case because of the nature of our institution. We can't sit here and agnostically consider all models for all time, one that has consciousness in it, one that doesn't, one that has alien ashtrays in it. We can't look at them all. We examine at a moment in a situation a given suggestion, such as consciousness exists. Because David Chalmers walked in to the subway while we were trying to eat and started arguing with us. Whatever. <laughs> the situation arises such that it becomes relevant. Uh-huh. And due to extraneous circumstances, there is a impetus to temporarily and conditionally resolve said dispute. So then we, at some point, have to do that. And I'm just saying that this kind of skeptical parsimonious burden of proof argument is something that i think is always hanging out in the background whoever walked in to our vicinity and wants us to believe in something hey i've got an idea i've got a model a theory a hypothesis whatever you want to call it i've got a thing and you should buy it at some point i either pull out my wallet or don't before i leave their vicinity and move on to the next project so it's not that I'm declaring, there's not supposed to be any dogmatism here, it's not that I'm making an assertion about the world that it has no consciousness, not the point. The point is, given what I've seen so far, engaging with the literature and the YouTube videos and the arguments, I have not been satisfied that the burden of proof has been met. Since it has not been met, then, for now, I don't include consciousness in my ontology. It's pretty simple. To me yeah well that's fine i mean i i yeah that none of that's a problem for me you mean it's not the silliest idea you've ever heard because <laughs> <laughs> i was told that that saying that makes me you know that i, I don't know i should be hung or something i'll just totally wrap up the frankish paper we're at the last page okay and to reiterate what we've already said so frankish is saying that he wants to move Illusionism replaces the hard problem with the illusion problem. The problem of explaining how the illusion of phenomenality arises and why it is powerful. He also writes in the very final paragraph, Our introspective world certainly ding, <laughs> seems to be painted with rich and potent qualitative properties. But to adapt James Randi, if Mother Nature is creating that impression by actually equipping our experiences with such properties, she's doing it the hard way. That's what I want to talk to Professor Frankish about. The difference between the angle, the why would one be an illusionist rather than an eliminativist, and when you're willing to say that we have 
you accept introspection and seemings and rich, potent, qualitative properties. What do you mean it seems that way? I'm not even willing to go as far as he in the direction of catering to the Chalmerses of the world, and I don't quite understand that. But anyway, that's hopefully for the 12.2 listeners out there. Double digits! <laughs> um, maybe they now understand a little bit more about what illusionism is supposed to mean, what Keith Frankish's position is, and why it doesn't go far enough, according to some random podcast host that nobody gives a shit about. What You have a question, though. I do, man. Let's talk about I'm it. I'm going to ask it. Why do you care about this topic? Clearly, I don't, right? I'm just like, eh, whatever. You really care about this topic. I've told you why, like, diversity matters to me. Why does consciousness, or, you know, whether it is or isn't, why does this topic matter to you? Why, why do we spend so much time talking about it? What, what am I missing Number one, and, and also number two, just what, why do you care? Why do you care? Oh, my God. All right, first of all, first part of the answer, I don't have a high degree of confidence in any personal psychological judgments. I don't think Whatever. any of us know why any of the whys or wherefores of why we do and what we do or think what we think or care about what we care about. There might not even be answers to those questions. If there are, I don't have any special access to it. Irrelevant. Answer the question. We're not in the paper anymore. I will speculate about why (laughs) it might be that I spend time reading, writing, thinking, and talking about philosophy Philosophy of mind topics. Consciousness, not philosophy of mind topics. Consciousness specifically. Yes. Why do I care in the sense of invest time and energy in talking about consciousness? Is that the question? <laughs> you just answer the fucking thing. Here is the, one of the first things that comes to mind, because you're totally catching me off guard with this question. What One of the things that comes to mind is that I enjoy being a contrarian, a radical, a provocateur, an iconoclast. And this appears to me, consciousness seems to me, to be one of the most treasured dogmas of the population that I share the spaceship with. (laughs) And... I want to attack it and go after it. Like, it, it's this... To me, there's a lot of similarities between this and God. Mm-hmm. and Or, you know, and an atheistic position. Right. But I don't spend much time talking and arguing about God because, in part, I think it's too obvious. It's done. We're for, that's, like, belief in God is out. We figured that out 100 years ago. The answer is unlikely. Move on. This one seems to be a little bit more like the 21st century God, the thing that almost everyone buys to the extent that if you deny it, you get burned at the stake. 
This is the silly. You're the silliest person ever. You know, you're in big trouble if you try to uh-huh. deny it. But I don't see any good arguments in its favor. And so, since it's both prevalent and poorly argued, I want to argue against it. I don't know if that does that answer your question directly enough. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if that's true <laughs> of me. I don't know if that's why, but that comes to mind as a proposal. Why do you not care about this? Um, because I care about other things. I guess that's that would be my answer. There's only so much time and energy, and you're occupied. Yeah, and whatever for whatever it is, reason, the variation and diversity of organisms was always an appeal to me and it was and I, it's very aesthetic like i don't know what else to say it it i don't know it hits my chimp or whatever you want to however you want to talk about it and i don't i won't be like i speculate like i'm no caveats just this is what i think i think and i could be wrong about everything fine but when asked the question that's what my answer is about diversity and stuff and I just love it. I'm uh-huh. 